imagination births creativity. You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read and daydream. In this season, Creative Conversations, we talk to your favourite artists and authors to find out what inspires them. Creativity is the thing that changes the world. This talk was recorded as a live stream conversation. If you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. Just don't be afraid of failing. Up next, Jessica Townsend. Now I have a very special guest sitting here with me today. It's Jessica Townsend. Hi. Thank you for having me. We're very excited. Yes, we're very excited <laughs> to have you. Okay, we're going to learn a little bit more about digging deeper into what it means to be an author. So our first question comes from Santa Sabina College. What inspired you to become an author? And when did you first realise you wanted to be one? Well, I realised really early on. Um, I was about seven. <laughs> and I think it was when I first found out what an author was. Um, I, I learned, my sister taught me to read when I was four and so I was pretty book obsessed from an early age and I think it was around age six or seven um, I had a teacher uh, who uh, came to school one day and said alright we're learning storytelling, we're learning how to write stories and every story has a beginning and a middle and an end so I want you to write a three sentence story, a beginning <laughs> sentence, a middle sentence and an end sentence and I got so excited <laughs> and I'm so bad at following instructions <laughs> that my three-sentence story went for about a million years. Um, and she, instead of getting a bit cranky, she uh, sent my story, called The Three Koalas, it was very Australian, uh, <laughs> she sent it off to our local librarian who published it in her newsletter and I felt like a proper famous. Um, <laughs> and, and that was kind of, I think, when I made the connection that the books that I loved, they didn't just appear there by magic, they actually, you know, real people wrote them and they got to do that for a living and it had this name author and I and I said to my mum I was like that's what I'm gonna do. That's excellent. <laughs> Thanks Jess. Okay is being an author everything you thought it would be and what are the best and worst parts about being an author? Ooh, I mean it's <laughs> it's everything that I thought it would be and much 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 more. There are elements of this that I just was not anticipating um, in a really good way. It's the best thing ever. It's the best job in the world. Um, the best part um, I mean, there are two best parts. One is that I get to work in my pajamas. Um, and the other one, the other part is that my job is just like playing in a sandpit. It's just daydreaming and thinking up fun things and writing them down. And, um, and I really love that element. Um, the worst bit, I get this question a lot and I really struggle to answer it because I genuinely don't think there are any bad bits. I, I can't, I have not met a downside yet. I keep waiting, but no, it's all pretty good. How long does it take you to write a book? Ooh, okay, that's a tricky one because I have written two books and the first one took me a slightly ridiculous amount of time. It took me 10 years. Um, now, I will say that I was also... I usually, when I say that, I usually get gas, gasps of horror around the room. Um, but I was, you know, I wasn't working, writing full-time. I, was, okay. I was working full-time. I was also planning a, a series. I was planning the entire series um, and kind of plotting out future books in that time as well. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a deadline and I didn't have an audience so I could procrastinate, which I'm really good at. Um, and then the book two was a totally different story because suddenly I have a deadline and I have editors and I have readers. So um, people, there's, there's this expression where people say you, you have your whole life to write your first book and then six months to write your second one. Um, and I took a little longer than six months. It took probably about a year to write Wonder Smith, but... Yeah. Cool. So if we average that out, it's somewhere around yes, the five-year... Between one or ten. ten and one year. <laughs> Perfect. 
Great. And this might be a tricky question. Do you have an all-time favourite book? It is really hard because I, I feel such a like a tug of loyalty to all of my favourite books. I think if I had to pick one absolute all-time favourite, it would be Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I started reading that when I was eight and I've read it so many times since then. I love stories about sisters um, and that I think Little Women is like the ultimate sister story. And I love Jo March. She's, um, she's one of my favourite heroines. Aww, <laughs> and that's wonderful given that your sister was the one that taught you to read and exactly. then sister books yes. are yeah. important to you. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the inspiration and process of what it is to be an author. So this question comes from Coonawarra Public School. They want to know, do you have a really extensive vocab <laughs> vocabulary? Or do you use a thesaurus to help you come up with such interesting words? That's such a good question. Um, I, I don't know. It's really hard to judge one's own vocabulary. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I think I have a pretty good vocab. Um, and I think that when I was a kid, that was something that I tried really hard to work on. I was really mm -hmm. conscious of the fact that I wanted to learn new and interesting words. And I did... I am such a nerd. I did I did have a big thesaurus and sometimes I would just flick through it. Oh, that's really embarrassing to admit. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, actually a really good tool. If you're writing a story and you have, you know, a word that may not exactly fit perfectly or you don't think it's quite the right word, quite good enough for this particular story or sentence, uh, if you're writing in um, Microsoft Word, right-click synonyms or right-click thesaurus, I can't remember which it is, and it will come up with a whole list of alternatives. Um, and it's not perfect by any means. Like, it's not always like a direct translation that, oh, this word means this word. Um, but it's quite good if you want to just slightly adjust the, the word and have a slightly different meaning. And I mean, I'm all for that. I think that's a really useful tool to have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. Okay, our next question comes from St Philomena's School. This is a great question. Do you ever chat to other authors? And if you do, what do you talk about? Well, yeah, I do actually. Um, I mean, I never used to know any authors, but now I am one and suddenly they're coming out of the woodworks. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been chatting to some recently actually. Um, we, it's the things that we talk about, um, we do talk a lot about, you know, author life and, mm. and the, the kind of weirdness and, and how surreal it is to, you know, the, we have this weird, um, like kind of, here's a word dichotomy. We have this weird dichotomy in our lives, which is like a sort of, you know, a dual-sided uh, life for an author where on the one hand, you're spending a lot of time sort of hunched over a laptop in the dark, mm. writing a book all on your own. And then on the other hand, you're kind of doing these yeah, things wow. and going out and visiting readers and, and meeting people. And it's so strange to have these really different aspects of your life. So that's something I've been talking um, to some of my author pals with recently. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And when you meet up with them, are you in your jammies or do you wear your other clothes? <laughs> do you know what's really funny is that just recently I did an event for the Australian Reading um, reading Hour and I was with Lynette Noni and it was a pyjama party. <gasps> so, yeah. This is a question about you and your growing up, where you grew up. So we know that you grew up on the Sunshine Coast in beautiful Queensland. How did growing up there shape your writing and stories? There's lots of mountains there, beaches, lots of wildlife, and as I would imagine, lots to stimulate your imagination. I mean, definitely. There's, I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid. I was a, a nipper. I was a junior surf lifesaver for a period. Um, you wouldn't believe it now. Look how, look how pasty I am. Um, I used to spend time in the sun. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a beautiful place, the Sunshine Coast, and it's a really lovely lifestyle. And, you know, you have mountains and beach and just... Um, I feel like, though, in terms of kind of stimulating my imagination, mm. um, 
it was it was a lovely place to grow up, but it was also as a kid, some parts of it were a bit boring because I wasn't in Sydney. I wasn't in the middle of a city somewhere with lots to do, and I feel like that's one of the most important parts of writing and and mm. and building your imagination is having that time when you're bored and you have to kind of go into your own mind and and entertain yourself. Um, and it kind of wasn't until sort of I I was in my twenties and I moved to London where suddenly my surroundings were a direct inspiration for the things that I was writing. How do you know what will make a good story? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, look, for me, it's just a really personal thing because my, the two books that I've written, um, they were just the story that I wanted to read most. Um, so I don't feel like I have any kind of formula. I don't feel like there is any kind of formula. Um, I think that if you are a reader and you are writing something that you yourself would love to read, then that mm. is something that makes a good story. But then you could kind of go into the mechanics of it all. So, you know, you've got the, the, the ingredients, I guess, um, for a good story. So you've got an interesting plot. You've got conflict between characters. Um, characters themselves, I think, are really important to making a story because, you know, those are kind of your, as a reader, they're, they're your anchor as you're mm. following through the, whatever the plot is doing. You want to stay with this character and you want to, even if they're not necessarily, they don't have to be likeable or lovable, but they need to be kind of compelling and they need to be someone that you want to spend some time with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like a good friend, you want to hang out with them <laughs> right, and yeah. dive into that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you have a notebook and write things down as you see them in everyday life? When you see an idea, if you've had a dream, how do you grab things and, and make sure they stay in your brain? So most often when I do that and I think of something or I, I've even had like dreams and I'm sort of half awake and I just think of something and I wake myself up and I grab my phone, which is always beside my bed, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's good if you're a writer because you can pick up your phone and there's a little notes app and I write things down and then sometimes I come back to them the next day and they just make no sense whatsoever <laughs> and I have to try and like decrypt my own. What was I, what did I mean to say here? What is this like flying tortoises? I have no idea what this means. Um, <laughs> but I also have lots and lots of notebooks and okay. I try to carry one around with me and, and scribble things down. It's useful to have. Well, we know that the very exciting and sometimes scary but always adventure-filled Nevermore was Jess's first book. I have some really exciting news to share with you. Jess is going to read an excerpt from the book herself, which is so exciting to have the words directly from the author's mouth. Jess, which section are you going to read from? I am going to read from chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, which is called Illegal. And it, uh, Morrigan has moved into the magical Hotel Ducalion, which is a living magic hotel. Um, and yeah, well, you'll see what happens. Chapter 10, Illegal. Room 85 on the fourth floor was slowly becoming Morrigan's bedroom. Every few days, she noticed something new and brilliant, something she loved instantly. Like the mermaid bookends that showed up on her shelf one day, or the black leather armchair shaped like an octopus that curled its tentacles around her while she read. One night several weeks earlier, the bed had changed from a plain white headboard to an ornate wrought iron frame while she slept in it. The Ducalion obviously thought it had made a mistake, though, because two days later, she woke up swinging in a hammock. Her favourite thing of all was a small framed painting of a bright green jelly sculpture which hung above the toilet. At first she thought it was Jupiter or Fenn changing things in secret, testing her gullibility. Until once, in the middle of the night, she stepped into her bathroom for a drink of water, only to see the bathtub growing four talon-shaped silver feet before her eyes. Strangest of all, the size and shape of the room were changing. 
Where once was a single square window, she now had three arched ones. One day, her bathroom was the size of a ballroom and had a tub like a swimming pool. The next day, it was no bigger than a closet. Soon, there were window boxes full of red flowers, a skeleton hat stand wearing a grey fedora in her size, <laughs> and thick vines of ivy twisting halfway up a stone fireplace. And for the first time ever, Morrigan Crow felt that she was in exactly the right place. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Pleasure. Jess. Thank you so much. Well, we have lots of questions that have been sent in about Nevermore, so we'll get stuck Excellent. into those. <laughs> this, come, this question comes all the way from Coonawarra Public School. How did you decide on a cover on the cover art for the book itself? Ah, well, the interesting thing is I don't necessarily decide on the cover ah. art. I, I do have cover approval, so I work with my publishers um, to sort of come to an agreement about what we want to see on the cover. Um, I, I definitely have had, uh, you know, kind of more involvement than I was sort of expecting. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of thought that they would present the cover to me and I would be like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was that um, they they chose a, an artist uh, whose name is Jim Madsen. He's American and he's very talented. Um, and they presented some of his uh, samples of work to me and I said, that's brilliant, he looks amazing. And, they, and then my publishers asked me what kind of scenes I thought would make a good cover and I suggested a couple of alternatives. Um, and one of them for, for Nevermore was obviously the one that made it, which is uh, Morrigan and her friends jumping off the rooftop of the Hotel Gkalian with their umbrellas. Uh, and, and then uh, Jim sketches up those options, we pick the best one, and then it's kind of a, a process of going back and forth and refining and I might say, well actually this character should look a little bit more like this and mm. this person's hair looks a little bit more like that. Um, but I've been really lucky. I have um, a lot of different covers around the world and I love all of them. They're all really, really different. Um, but I, I kind of have a, a special place in my heart for each of them. Aww. I think the Australian one is my favourite. Don't tell the others. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of illustrations and art, why did you choose not to have any illustrations in the book itself? Ah, again, not my choice. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's just one of those things, I think. So in the American version, there are... Um, illustrations at the head of every chapter um, and then in the in the British version um, there's a, kind of a, an illustrate like there are about five or six motifs that get repeated um, throughout the chapters and then in the Australian one we don't have illustrations and um, I mean I think it's just kind of a space in the book thing and a, and a budget thing maybe but um, I also kind of like that and I sort of prefer it in a way because for me as a reader I really love the bit where I get to imagine what's happening in my own head and mm. then I have those pictures really clearly um, rather than kind of having someone else's idea in my head. And now for some questions about the inspiration for Nevermore. Mm. This question comes from St Philomena's. How did you choose the title and the theme? for Nevermore? That's a huge question. Oh, those are two, two good questions, really. Yes. Um, so as for the title, names are really important to me. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with names <laughs> and always have been. Um, for the title for the book, I when I realised that this was going to be set in a magical, dangerous, slightly sinister kind of living city, I wanted to name it after the city and I needed that city to have a name that felt kind of whimsical and magical, but also had that slight dark seam to it and that sort of sinister edge. And Nevermore as a word um, comes from my favourite poem, which is The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, which I highly recommend that you uh, seek out and try and read. 
And the raven has a repeated motif through it. Um, the, the line is, quith the raven nevermore. And the raven is a fantastic poem. It's quite scary. It's quite dark. Um, and I just loved that because it worked in really well with um, these like thematic elements that I had of, you know, Morrigan Crow. The name Morrigan um, is from Irish mythology. And the Morrigan was the goddess of death. I'm so bleak. Um, <laughs> the Morrigan is the goddess of death. And she had the ability to transform herself into a crow. Um, and then, of course, the, the surname Crow. Um, and so it kind of worked in with that. But also I changed the spelling of, of Nevermore from M-O-R-E to M-O-O-R because it felt kind of geographical. Mm. And as a place name, that was important to me. So exciting. And, and hearing you talk about the, the scary stuff, the goddess of death. Mm. But then you have these extremely fun things. like the, I can't tell you the number of times I read this wishing I had my own brolly rail to get around. <laughs> Not only because of Sydney traffic, but just because my imagination <laughs> was going wild. So the really, really fun things and fan and all that stuff. Yeah. And then these dark places it, it's extremes and it makes it so powerful to dance between well those are my favorite stories those have always been my favorite stories are the ones that are really really quite sinister and quite dark mm. but then right alongside that they're incredibly silly and just absurd like my sense of humor is quite silly and quite absurd <laughs> and so I love having those together and um just that uh here's another vocab word for you kids the juxtaposition <laughs> of the silly and the sinister. That's one of my favourite things. I find that really entertaining. Our next question uh, also is from St Philomena's. Why do you think your book has become so popular so quickly? I mean, <laughs> search me. <laughs> I genuinely cannot answer that question. Yeah, no. It's a really weird thing because for me, this is such a weird book. I mean, it's so kind of personal to me and mm. I, I wrote the, th I spent a really long time writing this and I, wouldn't have been able to to finish it because you know if I hadn't been writing just the thing that I loved and the thing that really kind of lit me up inside and I felt like all of these these things in this book were so peculiar to me but I also think that maybe that is the thing that makes it work because if you're writing a book where you are trying to please people and you're trying to seek out some kind of big audience then I think that you run the risk of writing something that's really quite generic mm. um, and, and you know, you, if you try to please people too much then, you know, you can't really please anyone. Whereas for me, it was the specificity of writing these really odd things that kind of made me laugh or made me scared. Maybe that's <laughs> what people are connecting with is that specificity. Okay, this is a lovely question from Largs Public School in the Hunter Valley. They have said, this is a two-part question. First part of this question, we are currently listening to the audio presentation of Nevermore, cool. as read by Gemma Whelan. <laughs> Do you think Gemma's British accent brings anything to the narrative? Yes. So this is a topic that I am always happy to talk about. <laughs> um, not just her British accent. I mean, definitely I was always, you know, as far as audio goes, I always wanted this to be read by someone who was British because I think that the books have a very British sensibility. Um, I also think that in a way they're quite Australian, but I think that they're, they're really Australian in a way that people outside of Australia wouldn't necessarily pick up on, which kind of tickles me because I feel like we're all in on a secret. <laughs> because there are tiny little Australianisms that an English person or an American would just their eyes would glaze over mm. and they wouldn't they wouldn't pick it up um, but overall I mean Nevermore is kind of like a fictional London in a way um, I mm. spent a lot of my 20s living in London so they definitely had that British um, feel to them for me uh, Gemma Whelan is brilliant I mean I think that she is so talented and so funny and her comic timing is just amazing and when I first heard this audiobook I was just 
I mean, I was amazed, and I continue to be amazed, and I've, I've listened to it a couple of times. That's a terrible thing to admit about your own book. But I just love it so much um, because she does all of these amazing voices and a different voice for every character, and I love audiobooks. And it's, um, I mean, the fact that I wrote it aside <laughs> purely because of her performance, it's like my favourite audiobook. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And the second part, I think we kind of maybe will know the answer to this now, but the second part is also, do you think audiobooks are as good as reading books? No, they're terrible. No, yes, I love audiobooks. <laughs> no, I really love them. And they've been quite useful to me in the last year because um, I've had this thing where, you know, I've been trying really hard to write my second book mm. and that's been taking an awful lot of my time. So every time I sat down with a physical book, I had this overwhelming sense of guilt that I wasn't working on my own Aww. book. But the loophole is audiobooks <laughs> uh -huh. because audiobooks fill a lot of dead time where you're walking or you're doing your makeup or you're washing the dishes or you're having breakfast. Um, and so I think audiobooks, I think well, that we shouldn't be snobby about the way mm. that we consume books because a book is a book and a story is a story. And I have no snobbishness surrounding ebooks or audiobooks. I think that they're all books and they're all stories. Mm. That's <laughs> great. And it's so lovely to hear you say that you love Gemma's work so much and it sounds like giving ownership, as it were, Gemma's able to take your book and give her own take on it. And then you spoke about all these different illustrators and all around the world, some do have and some don't have. It sounds like as a writer, there's a certain sense of freedom or, or giving that you just have to go, okay, this is out and you can all interpret it as you wish. Or... Absolutely. And for me, when I'm writing, I'm so private and this feels so personal to me and I and I'm so such a control freak about <laughs> the writing of the book itself that actually when it is its own thing it goes out into the world and it doesn't just belong to me anymore it belongs to readers and it also belongs to anyone who wants to interpret it artistically the way that they want to so I love that I think there is like kind of a freedom in that mm. and it's um yeah it's it's one of my favorite things about it even if we do have our own little Australian club that we understand yeah, certain yeah, things yeah, about yeah, our right. own little <laughs> secret for Unit 919 Australian wink, version. Wink. <laughs> Great. Okay, now we have received lots of questions about characters, so we'll get stuck into those. This one comes from Lindisfarne Anglican Grammar School. Where did you get your inspiration to create all the different characters in your books? Well, I mean, it's less inspiration and more some kind of madness where I just can't stop creating <laughs> new characters. And every time I create a new one, I think, is this the one, is this the straw that breaks the camel's back? Are my editors going to be like, can you tone it down? Can you stop introducing so many people? Um, I don't know. <laughs> There's just a lot of people living up here. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. I kind of love it. It's, it's fun to, like, think up a whole new person and, and hear their voice in my head and and sometimes it's surprising that um, you know there's there are ca new characters there's quite mm. a few new characters in in Wondersmith mm. and some of them genuinely surprised me because I I wasn't planning them and I'm a real planner I'm a plotter uh -huh. um, and I know so many of the characters that will be introduced throughout the entire series but then even just sitting down to write Wondersmith one chapter there was this character that popped up and I was like oh okay hi how are you going um, <laughs> and that freedom comes in all right it's amazing yeah it's very fun. <laughs> Well, we have a question from St. Paul's Anglican Grammar School. We have noticed that the characters' names are very descriptive of the characters themselves. Could you please tell us the process and resources you use to come up with the character names? Definitely. Well, going back to what we were talking about before about the name of the book itself, I am mm. name obsessed and I've been like that since I was a kid. I used to write, <laughs> I used to write lists and lists of names. <laughs> And I either had to have 40 children or write books. Um, and so I chose the easy one. Um, and <laughs> I, I found them everywhere. So there was one year for my birthday. I'm such a nerd. I asked for a baby naming book as a kid for my birthday. 
they're great. They have all of these thousands of names <laughs> and all of the meanings, which I really dig. Um, and also, there's a, there are lots of baby naming websites that have the, the meanings attached to them as well. I used a site called BehindTheName.com, um, which was really useful. Uh, and also, there's another thing that I do if you're ever looking for names, hot tip. At the end of a movie, if you hang around and watch all the credits and then just pick out the names from the credits ah. that look good, and any that you remember at the end of the credits, those are quite good, memorable names. Um, as far as the meanings go, <laughs> um, yeah, that's really important to me. It's not always the most important to me. I, I'm not always trying to necessarily like foreshadow anything with okay. the with the naming. Sorry, the, the meaning of a book of a name, um, but they're important to me, kind of you know thematically. Morrigan Crow, she's cursed. She knows when mm. she's going to die. Obviously, crow crows can be sort of an omen of death in some cultures, and that's why you have the goddess of death, Morrigan. Um, Jupiter North is one of my favourites. Um, I named him Jupiter because Jupiter in Roman mythology is the father of the gods and he kind of fills this role as Morrigan's father figure or big brother figure and then his surname North um, on the one hand I wanted something that felt kind of geographical because he's an explorer and he's an adventurer but then on the flip side as well he is kind of almost the moral center or the moral heart of this book and I kind of think of him as you know this moral compass so he's sort of Jupiter's true north uh, sorry mm. Morrigan's true north um, but and some names I just choose because they look good on the page <laughs> <laughs> all a variety of reasons right <laughs> So there are some characters who have a bit of trouble making friends. Morrigan, for example, before she goes to Nevermore and meets Jupiter and Hawthorne. And also Cadence, who is always forgotten and it seems she's really desperate, like Morrigan, to find a place to fit in. So why is making friends, fitting in and finding a place to belong such an important feature of this story? I think that's a really universal thing. I, I don't know many kids and I don't know many adults for that matter who haven't sort of experienced that at some point in their lives. Um, you know, it's also around this particular age, like at age 10, 11, 12, that's a really important time for the development of identity and it's the time where you're starting to sort of look outside of yourself and look outside of your immediate surroundings of your, your kind of family mm -hmm. um, and you start to place real importance on, on friendships and on the other people in your life and so um, if you're having that kind of difficulty of not necessarily fitting in and not necessarily finding your group and, and your group of people, um, that can be a really tough thing to deal with. So I think that it's important at any age but especially around that age it's an important thing um, and yeah, sorry, I forgot the other half of your question. Um, <laughs> I went off on that's, one. No, that's, that's it, you answered it. Why, why is it so important to, to have that in the story? And, and I right. think you've okay. answered that. There's a friend in the story for maybe kids reading who are wondering where they fit. Morrigan is a mate who also doesn't fit and Absolutely. she figures it out and maybe yeah. figuring it out with her. And, and that thing about found family as well, you know, mm. friendships aside, Morrigan is you know, the ultimate archetype of the downtrodden child, the unloved child, like Harry Potter and like Matilda and like so many other mm. children's book characters before her. And, um, you know, the fact that she is is able to be spirited away into this new magical land, it is kind of the, the ultimate metaphor for finding your group and finding your tribe. Um, and she does manage to find a family who love her. We're about to move on to our next section. I have a very quick last question for that section, which is how... This one comes from St Philomena's, again. Mm -hmm. How does a book get published? Oh, man, that's, Maybe that's so a big question. 
Maybe I it's mean, not a 30 second answer. Again, search me. <laughs> I just do the easy bit. Right. I, okay. I write the words on the page. Uh, in my experience, um, for very, very briefly and very badly done, I'm sure, I wrote my book, I finished it. That's the mm -hmm. important bit, you have to finish it. Okay. Um, I sent it out to literary agents. And um, for those of you who don't know, a literary agent is someone who uh, works in the book industry, but not for publishers. And so if they read your book and they really love it, they um, will say, yes, I will represent you. Um, they take a percentage of your income, <laughs> uh, which is actually quite important. Um, and then they will take your book and they will shop it around to publishers and try to get you a book deal. So that's what happened with me. Um, and then the publishers, uh, you will work, once you have a book deal and you, and you have a publisher, you will work with editors who will help you refine and polish and rewrite and redraft, which is another really important part of the writing process is rewriting. Um, and then they do a bunch of magic things that I don't understand <laughs> where they print out book covers and then pages and put them together like whoo um, and then they sell them to bookstores and they promote them in the wide world and you can tell I have no idea what I'm talking about in this part of the process I just do the easy bit the writing the yeah. pajamas the turning yeah. up at Sydney Opera House to talk to all of you on a Wednesday morning the fun stuff <laughs> Okay, we know that Jess has written a very exciting sequel to Nevermore. It's called Wondersmith, and I know none of you will have had the opportunity to read it yet. So it is very exciting. Jess is going to read an excerpt from Wondersmith right now just for us. Thank you, Jess. All right. Uh, so this is from Chapter 2, which is called Sisters and Brothers. Small spoiler warning for those of you who, read and, who haven't read Nevermore. This is Morrigan is... Uh, uh, beginning her new life at the Wondrous Society. Uh, sisters and brothers, shoulder to shoulder beneath a starry, cloudless sky, the nine newest members of the Wondrous Society stood outside its gates, sleep-rumpled and cold. Morrigan might have felt alarmed at having awoken in the middle of the night in the chilly streets of Nevermore, wearing only her pyjamas, but two things kept her worry in check. Firstly, that the gates of Wonsock had been transformed into an enormous, unseasonably botanical welcome sign, a rainbow-coloured floral tapestry of roses, peonies, daisies, hydrangeas and twisting green vines that read thrillingly, come in and join us. Secondly, that the boy standing to her right, gangly-limbed, curly-headed, one corner of his mouth smeared with the remnants of a bedtime chocolate, was her best friend in the whole world. Hawthorne Swift rubbed his eyes and grinned at her blearily. Oh, he said, as unruffled as ever. He craned his neck around to look at the seven other children lined up on either side of them. They too were shivering and pyjama-clad and looked grumpy and alarmed to varying degrees. One of those weird one-sock things, is it? Must be. I was having the best dream, he croaked. I was flying over a jungle on the back of a dragon and I fell off and tumbled down into the trees and then I got adopted by a gang of monkeys. They made me their king. Morrigan snorted. Sounds about right. My friend is here, she thought happily. Everything was going to be okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for that sneak of preview of Wondersmith. It's very exciting. So we have a couple of questions about Wondersmith. Great. Santa Sabina College have sent in the first question, which is how did you get the idea of a second book? 
Uh, well, I kind of always thought of this as a series because when I was writing, when I started even just plotting the first book, before I even really seriously started writing it, um, I realised that the story I wanted to tell was a really big one <laughs> uh, with lots of characters, as we know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the time frame that I that I was looking at was so long and the, and, the, and the world was so big and there was so much of the world that I wanted to explore that I knew there was no way I could ever fit this into one book. <laughs> um, and so I... I actually planned the series and have planned the series as um, a series of nine books. Uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> um, so hopefully I'll get to finish the whole series. Um, but yeah, no, I, I always intended it to be nine and I had the names of all nine books before I even really properly started writing book one. Thank you, Santa Sabina, for that question and thank you thank for your you. answer. <laughs> Our next question is from St Philomena's. Are you... well? This we kind of just got the insight to, are you going to write any more books in addition to Nevermore and Wondersmith? Which... Surprise! <laughs> Spoiler alert. You're getting lots of sneak peeks, everyone. It's very exciting. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, once I've finished uh, this tour promoting Wondersmith, I am about to start on book three. So there's definitely going to be three books, and I have planned it as nine. And, it, and it's looking, I've always been pretty pragmatic about, you know, we have to see how the first few books go. Um, but it's, it's actually, in a really exciting way, it's looking pretty positive and like I might get to finish the whole series of nine, which will be fun. <laughs> do you find when you're writing, even if you've got your mindset on the series up to number three, then mm. four, do you ever write little short stories or, or do you side know what? things? Or? I, I have a lot of ideas. So I, ideas for me feel quite easy. I, find, I feel like ideas are sort of a dime a dozen. It's the execution of ideas that okay. is the really hard thing. Um, I do find it easy to kind of get distracted by a new shiny idea. The way that I go, the way that I sort of get around that is that, I mean, first of all, I have this kind of sprawling, ridiculous world that, that I've sort of made. And so a lot of my ridiculous ideas can just go into, into Nevermore, into the series, <laughs> which is good, because um, they're always quite silly or quite scary. Um, and if I have something else, maybe like for an older series or a younger book or something like that, um, I give myself the kind of space to sit down, write it out, put everything on the page that, you know, just talking to myself, put everything on the page that, um, you know, I, I can think of and then I mm -hmm. put it away. And I think Aha. that's still going to exist if I want to write it between books or after this series or whatever. And I think that that's a really useful thing to do is to have like a little bank of ideas uh, for whenever. Okay, so we've got some questions about the future. What advice would you give to anyone who would like to be a writer when they grow up? Do it. It's great. Um, <laughs> I guess, like, kind of the more practical advice I would give. Um, first of all, the thing that every writer will tell you is read, 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 okay. read as much as you can. And read, um, you know, first of all, read widely. So I would say, you know, read from all different genres, um, all different kinds of writers, um, read as diversely as you can. And then when you find the thing that you know, the kind of story that sort of excites you and lights you up inside, then read deeply. Um, so if you decide that fantasy is the thing that you love, try and get hold of, you know, as much fantasy um, as, you can, as you can read. Um, the other thing that I would say is uh, that the most kind of important thing for me is the ability to daydream and the ability to be bored, as we sort of touched on a little bit earlier. Um, being bored is like, it's a rare thing in 2018. Mm. Because, and even for me, you know, and I don't mean this to sound kind of lectury or preachy, but 
we have so much content coming at us so constantly. We have phones and iPads and computers and TVs and it, it's almost, it's hard to find any kind of room to be bored because we can instantly entertain ourselves and we have that instant gratification. And, you know, I find that for, for when I was a kid, I, I feel like I spent so much time just being bored and saying, Mum, I'm bored. And Mum would be like, go on, entertain yourself. And I would and I, and I could entertain myself for hours just daydreaming and thinking up stories and having little toys and making them do interesting, fun things. <laughs> and I think that that was a really important part of my development as a, as a writer. So if you're serious and you really want to be a writer, try and sort of develop your... Your, uh, your daydreaming abilities by being bored. And it's not just important for writing. I think that having uh, a really strongly developed imagination is important just for being a human. And, you know, that's what helps us develop empathy with other people and makes us kinder people. So those are, those are the two things, read and daydream. <laughs> great, great advice, it sounds like. And <laughs> um, we have a question from King Koppel in Rose Bay. If you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would you... If this was young Jess sitting right here opposite <laughs> you, what would you say to her? I would say to her, finish. <laughs> finish the thing that you are working on, <laughs> Jess. I would also say to her, be patient, because, you know, when I first had the idea for this story, I was 18, and I thought, cool, I'm going to write this in six months. Like narrator reads over the top she did not write this in six months um, <laughs> um, and I actually think that that was also really important um, you know in hindsight that I took the time that I could sort of incubate the story and really let it develop as it needed to develop because if I had written that book in six months um, it would have been a totally different book and I don't think that it I don't think it would have been anywhere near like the story that it is and how important it is to me um, so I would say be patient but hurry up and finish <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> yeah. Now try and decode that, little Jess. <laughs> Great. Okay, so we've got some time for some more questions. I want to ask you a question about two particular characters in Nevermore. Mm -hmm. Characters Jack and Noelle. So we know that Jack and Noelle can be bullies at times. Why do you think it is important to include characters in your stories who are bullies and characters who are bullied? Why is that important for you? Well, going to the, the second half of the story, I think... Mm. Um, the, the being bullied, and I, I would sort of equate that with any of the kind of scary and confronting things that, that happen in the book. I think that those are really important things to have, particularly in children's stories, because, you know, it's, it's, an, it's important to be able to kind of face those problems in what feels like a safe space mm -hmm. and in what feels like a safe way where you know that there is going to be an outcome here, that, that you are going to be able to witness a character going through this thing. And so many kids go through bullying. I went through bullying when I was a kid. And, mm. you know, it was stories like that that kind of got me through and made me realise that, no, that there's a way to overcome these things and there's a way to deal with them. Um, and as far as the, the aspect of being bullies, I mean, you know, like characters like Noelle and, and especially Jack and even mm. Cadence to, mm. to an extent, um, those aren't terrible characters. You know, mm. like they're not, um, they're not villains. Um, they're just, they're real kids. And sometimes real kids bully and sometimes real kids say mean things. And um, I think that probably most of us have said things that we regret and been mm. mean at times. And so I think it's also so important to be able to show the different sides of characters and the different sides of people and and the way that again you know you can kind of move past those behaviors and and maybe become a bit of a nicer person yeah <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and like you said before hanging out with with kids in the book who are going through what you're going through is a nice little safe space you can just open it up and it then is close yeah it and open it up yeah and, and also like from bullying to the much 
you know, more sinister and the much scarier and more frightening things. Um, you know, these are quite frightening books. They're, they are silly, but there's a lot of scary stuff in there. I mean, from I kind of lay my cards on the table from the first page. Morrigan knows when she's going to die, and that's, that's a really grim thing. But um, I think it's so important that kids can be scared and see characters coming through these things on the other side. Yes, <laughs> definitely. They know there's a, there's no, they know there's a last page to the book. They know, they know, they know there's a resolution. They know there's, a, there's an outcome. And then they get the next book. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jess, for joining us today. We've all definitely had a brilliant time, lots of laughs. And we got to know a great deal about Jess's two books, Nevermore and Wondersmith. We got to learn about her processes as a writer and how we can all be amazing writers in our own way. Thank it's you. Been a, such a pleasure having you here to talk to us. Thanks for having me. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artie Farty wherever you get your podcasts from.